Hello, everyone. This is Art Taylor, host of the Heart of Giving podcast. Soon you'll be listening to our 100th episode. I couldn't let this milestone pass without acknowledging the incredible team that has helped us produce the show. Thanks go to Thad Housley, our producer at Mediata, Madhu Debneth, Lindsay Doherty, and the entire team at the BBB Wise Giving Alliance as well as our board of directors. I started this podcast to hold up those who understand the importance of giving and use their example to encourage others. I believe we are accomplishing that goal. Our guests form an outstanding lineup of thoughtful, passionate, and committed people who are making a difference. I want to thank each of them for sharing on our show. I also want to thank each of our sponsors, Francis and Tom Wolf, California Wellness Foundation, Tipping Point Community, Karen Giannis, Peter Cadence, Nick Gidwani, Be Generous, and our friends at the Better Business Bureau, whose support make this possible. Finally, I want to thank all of you, our listeners, for tuning in each week. You inspire us to continue to bring you great stories of generosity each and every week. Now on to our 100th show. You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. On the Heart of Giving podcast, we're going to bring you a series of episodes that feature powerful Black women who are giving back. We thought we would do this to emphasize the important role that black women play in philanthropy today and in helping us think about how we can be more impactful citizens and leaders in our organizations. You'll see that the people we feature are going to be from various professions and walks of life, and they all have a really fascinating story to tell about what engaged them in giving back and how they're going about doing it today. And by the way, each of our guests have been previous guests on the podcast. And I want to refer you to the podcast episode in the episode link so that you can go right to that particular podcast and hear the full interview that we've had with each of these wonderful people. On this episode, you're going to hear from Meskarum, we call her Meski Brahani, 
Meski is the practice manager, urban resilience, land, global practice at the World Bank. Lisa Ratliff, CEO of Kaboom. Elizabeth Clay Roy, CEO of Generation Citizen. I hope you'll enjoy this episode. Meski Brahani of the World Bank. Meski, I'm just digging into your background and I am just fascinated by all you've done the last 10 years, literally all over the world in places like Kenya, Vietnam, different parts of the African continent, particularly in East Africa, but also West Africa. You've even spent time in Mauritania. There's there's so many places you've been in 10 years. And what I hope we're able to do in this interview is take some of our listeners along with you as you do your work and really give them sort of a ground floor look at the important work you're doing to help countries, to help people become more sustainable, more resilient from disaster, to better utilize the land and opportunities that they have, and to also discover what the world is doing to try to support them. But let me start, first of all, with a little background on you. Obviously, you've been around for more than 10 years. What were you doing that led you to a career with the World Bank these last 10 years? And and particularly, what was it that really got you interested in international work? Let's see. I, I would like to start maybe from where I got my initial ideas behind an international career. I'd say my dad was an agronomist and he worked on breeding different kinds of crops, especially corn and sorghum, and trying to find ways for producing food that improves the quality of life for people around the world. So I saw him really working in you know many different countries and trying to improve people's livelihoods. And that was something that always inspired me. So I was very interested in doing international work, but I really wasn't the type to work on agriculture or, or the sciences, really. I was fascinated by, by people. And so when I went to graduate school to get my PhD, I was at the University of Chicago, I had an opportunity to study international development. It was in political science, but I was very much interested in how society, people, communities can affect the ways in which their states are built and the ways that the states are are governed. So I did field work in Mauritania for my PhD. I spent about a year and a half working in an informal settlement in the capital of, of Nouakchott. And I saw at the time that there were people migrating from the rural areas because their sources of livelihood, many of them were pastoralists, had you know basically disappeared. And they were settling in informal settlements all across the city and living in conditions that were, you know, didn't have any running water, didn't have proper housing, didn't have access to education. They were very far away from their sources of employment. But at the same time, these communities had a way of cooperating, helping each other, and bringing about 
change. And I also saw how in this context that if the government really was able to support them, they can really catalyze the energies and the knowledge and the skills that people have regardless of their income or their education level. So so that was really what got me when I was, you know, spent a year and a half there listening to people, observing how how much they suffered, that I could perhaps work on urban development issues and try to bring about change at a at a global scale from, you know, that experience. That's fascinating. Meski, you mentioned urban development and in the context of developing countries, that may be a concept that's a bit different than what we come to know it as here in the United States. How do we really define urban development in a developing country? And what are some of the differences between what they might consider development and what we're talking about here? Basically, urbanization is a process by which you observe cities, agglomerations growing. So you have more and more people who are living in a, in a settlement as opposed, and then their livelihoods are derived more from, from trade, from the service industry, or it could be from industrial type of employment, but it's work that's quite removed from say the agricultural or the rural you know, economies where people are deriving their livelihoods, say from farming and production of, of food. And so what we've seen actually all across the world, is countries become middle income as they be, as they have at least 60% of their population that are living in urban areas. So there is actually no country in the world that has become middle income without urbanizing. So that, that percentage of 60% of the people living in urban areas is a really critical trigger to seeing economic development occur. So if you look at the United States, for instance, we actually primarily we're a highly urbanized country compared to, say, Kenya. And we've seen this in, in East Asia as well, where you saw the Chinese economy grow very rapidly as people started settling in urban areas. And the benefit of that is that you have the agglomeration effects where you can bring people together, ideas together, they create or industries also can leverage each other's expertise. You have more trade and all of that, you know, fosters economic growth. So we want to make sure that in developing countries that we enable the countries to grow economically by also drawing on the skills and the economic potential of the people who live in cities. Lisa Ratliff of Kaboom. So how is it that you devoted your career to this? How did you get here? I noticed you were with other organizations that kind of focused on childhood development in some way. How did you end up taking this on as a career? Yeah, well, so my biggest cause is play. So for me, it started in childhood. I <laughs> I say all the time, our blueprints were formed in childhood, and I'm certainly no exception. So I was born to teen parents who were, you know, my mom was white, my dad was black, my mom was 15 when she had me. She finished high school in a year and a half and 
repurposed her entire life around me and bringing me up and making sure that I had this awesome childhood and was protected from a lot of the trauma that was going on around me. And my dad certainly was part of building that community as well. He was a high school athlete and had this amazing, loving, beautiful family that really poured themselves into me. And yet my dad was black and my mom was white and they came from different worlds and my mom's family did not like black people. So there was a lot of racism that I was brought into, but I became the ultimate unifier. And so my presence, just my birth alone brought together two families that would have never been together. And that for me was the first taste of a big part of my life and certainly a bigger part of my career, which is all about bringing people together around kids. And so I am not only a champion for making sure that kids have amazing places to play and that they have equitable access to safe places to play, but that people unify around making sure that happens and making sure that they are prioritized. And for me, it started from the moment I entered this world with not the best circumstances, but certainly a loving community around me and the necessity just by my very presence for people to learn to love each other because a child's life was on the line. And then I'll tell you just along the way, you know, I, I told you the story about, you know, my, my experiences on the playground. That was my very first memory on, in life was my friends. If I close my eyes, I can just see them so clearly. My friends, the friendships that I built, the things that I learned about myself all happened on the playground. I married my childhood sweetheart. <laughs> we were on that same playground together when I was a little girl. And then when I became a mom, I had an experience with my two kids on the playground where a stranger stopped, who's an educator, and he stopped and said to me, that is the most important thing that you will ever do with those kids is kneeling down and getting down, digging in the dirt, being in the sand with them and learning to speak their language will give them and you something that nothing else will. And I, I believed that and I lived it. And so all of these things that happened in my childhood and then all of these things that were reinforced along the way really spoke to me about how I would use my life. And so early on, I was in for-profit doing corporate work and then I moved my, my passion moved me into nonprofit, which is not something that I was a part of growing up. I just did not realize that people were putting their hearts and souls into other people in this formal way. I thought, you know, everybody just goes and earns a living. But I went to work at Habitat for Humanity, which was all about bringing people together in common purpose and save the children, which was all about making sure that our kids had access to early childhood education. And while I was there, one of the projects that I did was in South Carolina. We built a library and there were probably about 70 kids there who kept saying, yeah, but look at our playground. And the playground was the exact replica of the playground that I played on when I was five. So this is 30 years later, having a playground that whose swings didn't work, that was very old, and the kids just saying, hey, we just want a place to play. 
And when I found Kaboom or Kaboom found me, when we found each other, I knew that my entire life had been built toward this purpose. (laughs) And so I would say that it didn't, you know, wasn't one thing, but it certainly started from the very moment that I entered the world. I was taught about the very values that this organization exists for. So let's talk for a bit about how Kaboom goes about doing its work. Now, I know that since I've been on a actual build that you do use a lot of volunteers and outside corporate support and support of others to make these projects come together. But but what is the genesis and how did these projects actually come together into something that ends being a beautiful and functional playground for children? Yeah. Oh, I'd love to. So, and and we're work in progress as well. Like everybody else, you know, there's reflections we've had to make over the past couple of years to really think about, you know, how do we, how do we do more with our resources and our energy and our time? We, like I said, we, it's our 25th birthday this year. And for 25 years, we have been really looking We've always existed to make sure we are addressing inequities. And so really looking toward working in communities where there might not be a playground, an unsafe playground, not safe access to a playground. We have historically had a funder who's interested in bringing resources in the form of finances and volunteers. And I'll tell you about that to come together with community who looks at designing their space. What should their space look like? Do I want a blue slide? Do I need benches? What do we need in this space? So bringing our funders together with community and need and designing. And then, like you said, our work has is built with many hands. So historically, we have taken the energy and interest of the community and the energy and interest of our funders and the design that the kids and community create, and we bring them together and they build a playground. Elizabeth Clay Roy of Generation Citizen. So Liz, it seems that a lot of your experience is in this whole democracy building and citizen awareness, citizen help, help, self-help with democracy field. How did that happen for you? How did you get connected with this particular brand of work? It's a great question. And and in some ways, I think it was pretty organic. I am on both sides of my family. I have educators in my background. I had, including having a great aunt who was a civics teacher in North Carolina in the 1950s. And it really was, I think, a part not only of the upbringing that I had at home, but something that was a value for my family that we thought about what was going on in the community, what was going on in our city, in our state, in the nation. As important as what was going on in our own individual lives and therefore was a part of dinner table conversation, was a part of our commitment to volunteering and getting involved. It was a part of a recognition that I was never told that I had to wait till I turned 18 to get involved in my community. And so I was actively involving and volunteering and supporting from when I was in my early teens. 
So I really credit my family with raising me with a clear sense of my interdependence with my community. And that as I grew and developed talents or skills along the way, continued in my education, that that wasn't mine alone, right? That that was connected to the community that I was growing up in. And so as I was thinking about what my own path might be professionally and had a chance to study city planning, had a chance to study political science and other areas, as well as looking at some of the critical issues around economic and educational equity, a core theme that kept coming back for me was the sense that those with the solutions to some of our most challenging problems are those who are closest to those problems, right? Those who are living in a neighborhood know better than someone down in a, a city planning office what it is that they need for their community to thrive day to day. And so my understanding about what it looked like to be a, a good city planner or what it looked like to be an effective leader in an economic opportunity organization was always how do we use this institution and create platform for those who are closest to the problem to become the change makers, to be the problem solvers. And so I've always been interested in what sometimes is called participatory democracy or processes that really are more focused on giving a platform to those closest to each, each issue to be the true decision makers. And that my role has been throughout my career as being a facilitator of spaces that are involving those who are closest to issues to, to be involved in decision making. That brought me to a number of roles that you, know, you mentioned in that really thoughtful bio about my work with Opportunity Nation on economic opportunity. But I'll say a quick word about South Bronx Rising Together, where I spent five years I'm on a collective impact initiative in the heart of the South Bronx with a focus on how do we ensure that every young person in this community has the opportunity to really have the education and the career that is a springboard to success. And the focus of that work was to say, we can't only do this with the schools, right? That there is a way in which all sectors have a role to play in supporting young people's success from the pediatricians to the local businesses, as well as the teachers. And, but we had to start with what do students and parents want from their education system? And how do we make sure that they are stakeholders whose voices matter in decision-making at the community level? So that's been this common thread, connecting to the wisdom of those closest to our challenges and, and really proud to do that now with young people who absolutely um, have a vision for how they can make change at the community and school level. So let's talk about that. You're now the CEO of Generation Citizen. What does Generation Citizen do and how does it go about its work? What was it founded to do? So Generation Citizen is 13 years old and we are a community-based civics education organization. We partner with middle schools and high schools around the country. We typically partner with school districts who will bring Generation Citizen to all of the schools in their community. And we partner with them so that they bring into a class, it can be middle schoolers or high schoolers, but it'll typically be for a semester of a, a student's civics or U.S. history or government class. 
And they will have the opportunity to engage in what's called an action civics curriculum, where they are pairing their book knowledge of civics, the history and, and civics knowledge to understand what the infrastructure of self-government, what's the infrastructure of our democracy. But pairing that with hands-on learning, because they are practicing democracy while they are learning about it. What does that look like? Begins with a teacher, and we provide both a curriculum and professional development to the teacher and coaching to teachers to guide them through the process so that they create a democratic classroom where students on their Generation Citizen Days are invited to really learn all of the skills that we need as effective citizens in a democracy. And what do those skills include? First, it means being able to identify where are the issues that we see from our own lived experience, where our own government and our community could be in a better place. And then that that's not something that we hold alone, but that's something that we talk to our peers about. And so students are identifying issues going on in their community and talking to each other about them. They're doing perspective taking and building empathy while they hear what's going on for other students. They then are taking that and then doing some research, right? So it's not only what's going on for those students, but they're doing research and, and polling and looking at census data and, and, and connecting with students around the school to identify what issues are present. I hope you've enjoyed this edition of the Heart of Giving podcast. We're featuring powerful Black women who are giving back. Tune in for our next episode where we'll continue the conversation with three additional leaders in our society. Thanks for tuning in. And if you want to support the podcast, please do so by making a donation at give.org, G-I-V-E dot O-R-G. Thank you for listening. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.